Hi friends, I have launched an Indiegogo campaign and you can go there and see what it's all about by going to the Future Primitive homepage. That's futureprimitive.org and come on on the journey with us. my friends who listen to Future Primitive. This week, I'm uh, feeling a lot of joy because this was a long time coming. We were heading towards each other for a long time. I have that feeling. I'm on the phone with Bruce Frederick Dammer, PhD. He is a Canadian-American multidisciplinary scientist designer and author. Dr. Bruce Dammer collaborates with colleagues developing and testing a new model for the origin of life on Earth and in the design of spacecraft architectures to provide a viable path for expansion of human civilization beyond the Earth. He began his career in the 80s developing some of the earlier user interfaces for personal computers, led a community in the 90s, bringing the first multi-user virtual worlds to the Internet, and since 2000 supported NASA and the space industry on numerous simulations and spacecraft designs. He has been closely associated with counterculture figures like Dr. Timothy Leary, Terence McKenna, and others. He currently serves as principal scientist at Digital Space and a very big list of places and companies and people, including the faculty at Charles University in Prague. And he has a PhD from University College in Dublin. So with me today is Jacob, Jacob Amman, and he is our new partner on Future Primitive. And we're terribly excited. He's a permaculture designer, an ecological scientist, and a great artist and a close friend of Bruce's. So we have a really good trio here. Okay, Bruce, I understand you're full full up with your presentation in Santa Cruz this week. Would you like to talk to us about it? Yes, Johanna. Um, this is also a long time in coming um, for your listeners there's a wonderful conference called The Science of Consciousness, which was founded by Stuart Hameroff uh, in Tucson, Arizona, 24 years ago. And it's sort of the place to go for neuroscientists studying the brain, for meditators, for um, 
sort of theory of mind people for people like Deepak uh, Chopra. He goes every single year. He doesn't ever miss it. Roger Penrose is a physicist. Quite well-known names, lesser-known names, researchers. Asking the question, what is consciousness? Is it made out of a mechanical, physical process of the mind? Does it come from a bigger field outside? Uh, and it was just tremendous. We, we met in San Diego and La Jolla, uh, right next to the Craig Venter Institute. And Craig Venter was the uh, guy that sequenced the human genome uh, privately. And uh, it was a tremendous week. And I did the, uh, a closing plenary talk right after uh, Deepak's talk and right before Stuart Hameroff's talk. So I got to uh, basically, in a sense, open source, open cup the meeting and meet everybody. And my talk changed throughout the week. I have people come up to my hotel room and review it um, to, to make it fit. Um, all this understanding about consciousness. And by the time I presented it on uh, on Saturday, it was tuned in to the vibe or the feel, the heart vibe and the mind vibe of this wonderful group of people who have been meeting for 24 years. So where did you come from and how did it change you to receive and offer this experience? That's a beautiful way of, of asking it, Johanna. Uh, where I had come from is not knowing much about pe- the, the study of consciousness from the science point of view. I, I have experience in uh, meditative states, altered states, dream states, uh, all that. I have you know a long sort of exploratory timeline because I use imaginative thought experiments for my science and for my design work. I just use delivery from the ether, if you will, mm-hmm. of, of new insights, kind of like Albert Einstein did or Isaac Newton did or Descartes or Crick. Um, they all kind of had to turn off their ordinary functioning minds and their language and their, their critical thinking in order to allow insights in that led to breakthroughs. And that's that's the technique I use. And it it can be nothing more than just breath work, uh, yoga and breath work, right. that will allow these things in. And so uh, that's where I came in. But then I encounter people who literally are piece- pulling apart the brain and finding these things called microtubules which connect neurons, and there's trillions upon trillions of them, and that they may have quantum effects. Uh, I'm not an expert in any of that, but it was fascinating to see how they're finding a deep substructure of the mind that we've never seen before. And so by the end of the week, uh, one of these quantum people had sat in my hotel room and gone through my slides and said, oh my goodness, your little triangle that you came up with uh, is potentially linked into the quantum substructure we're studying. And then there was a philosopher who came to my room and more of a meditator, more of a deep thinker, uh, an experiential mystic. And he looked at this triangle and he said, this is tied into ontology. This is tied into the realm of all experience. Mm-hmm. So what, what has emerged is because of this, wonderful support by the people is this funny triangle that now seems to have emerged that talks to 
the lowest levels of physics and the highest levels of of experience. So that's how I've now come out of the the adventure in La Jolla. So consciousness is a community experience. Exactly, it's, it's a field. I came up, with, I just called it the field that we're all in. Right. And I know in, in, in your writings and your previous guests, you you have a delicious dance in and out of the field of, <laughs> of all knowing. And, and so in some sense, because we're working on the origin of life, we're working on the birth of this field, uh, starting with a little sludge of protocells three and a half, Four, four and a half billion years ago, created this first field on their own as they came into an existence through cycling. Oh, I love it. So, I love it. So we're not talking here about God the Father's orgasm, uh, <laughs> meaning the Big Bang. Yeah. We're, we're, we're not talking, talking about whole, that now. We're, we have a whole new model. Uh, and this is in education and science. It's in laboratory and field testing now. So it's, it's not woo-woo, but it no. actually uh, it has a generation. It has the power to generate both all science to to basically create a Copernican Copernican revolution, which means a reorientation of science, and also explain metaphysics, explain metaphysics, and explain. Uh, extraordinary states of consciousness. So this is actually what I'm putting in my book proposal. I have an invitation to submit a book proposal for a large New York publisher. And I'm going to, literally this morning, you're, you're, you're so timely, Johanna, because this morning I decided on on the, uh, the title of the book, which is, uh, you know, auspiciously the, the title of probably the greatest the greatest book I'll ever write is the Second Copernican Revolution. Ooh. And it, so I'm, I'm stepping beyond just the origin of life and going toward, hey, this discovery, the discovery that our ancestor yes. uh, cycled into existence almost like a, in a Taoist way. Yes. Because the Taoist the, the belief of the universe isn't somehow that there's a creator and there's a, a pot to be fashioned. You know, the, the Taoist view is that the universe is born out of cycles within cycles within cycles. And this new model for the origin of life doesn't require a godlike bearded creator, but it also doesn't require a strict Darwinian survival of the fittest model either. Of course. So it, it, it's a cooperative. Instead, it, it proposes, and there's ways to test this, a cooperative system, a community structure as a base, the root base of all life is a collaborative community. I just want to tell you, I'm, I'm experiencing such pleasure right now. I'm, I'm experiencing pleasure. Every cell and every nano cell in my body is jumping for joy. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. Maybe they're, they're hearing the, the, the story of their ancestors finally yeah. being revealed. Yeah. You know, and that that we we'll, we can stop fighting because yeah, we can stop the fight because the the mythology of the survival of the fittest, which is language 
that Darwin was convinced to to switch to in the later part of his life, he he didn't like it. I know. He used the word natural selection initially, and then he was talked into. So survival of the fittest is a very Victorian idea. You know, and of course, you came from a family in Switzerland whose whole modus was survival of the fittest. That's why, as you so beautifully described, how they tried to condition the children so that they they wouldn't give away the fortunes. Exactly. You know, and, and the, yeah, exactly. So that that was. I mean, when when empathy when empathy is killed in a child, that's what does it. That's what keeps the resources in a very 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 small uh, group of people. But first, I mean, yeah. every child is born with with empathy with everything, empathy with its own biological state. And empathy has to be killed so that the resources become so scarce and belong to so few people. Yeah, and that that's what's created the division and the separation. It creates war, it creates societal breakdown, it creates this crazy making and that we see so so much in the world, but at the same time, as people are healed, you know, as perhaps your journey You went through an amazing healing journey. I mean, you had to separate from that culture, and you found the whole psychedelic scene, and you found Tim. Yeah. You found people who were really on a quest. They were really on a quest to figure out how can we live a better way. And and I think humanity and your podcast, of course, has chronicled how we can live better and how we can live in harmony and how we can remove the barriers of separation. And it's a beautiful thing. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, I would like uh, our Jacob to come in here with uh, his inquisitive heart and mind. Wonderful, yeah. Um, so, Bruce, after I met you in 2011 during the Occupy movement, I was really uh, excited that a lot of my suspicions and beliefs around the magic and the level of cooperation and beauty in nature and ecology was so far superior to all of the trinkets and uh, technological you know excitement that's gone on our culture and the whole world now uh, for the last few generations um, and that you had done all of this deep research into the history of computing and then your kind of trajectory from computer science into biology and now philosophy. And, um, and along the path, I think you've always had, you know, a deep uh, spirituality within yourself. And so I guess one of my questions for you, as people get to know you on, on this podcast is, where do you see some of the, um, the exploration of space, that part of your work going now, as you go deeper and deeper into our Our, our past and, and the origins of, of life and how we became, um, you know, intelligent beings talking to each other. How do you see us balancing these insights from uh, studying life and, and, and the level of symbiosis that is integral to its function and how we could uh, really um, become more balanced on this planet before we 
branch out to go colonize. And we were talking about that word earlier is has so much baggage now, but, uh, you know, moving away from, uh, the panspermia theory into, uh, this homegrown, this beautiful, elegant theory that you guys are working with. How do you see, uh, our exploration of space going forward now? Yeah, in fact, the beautiful thing about it is uh, if we discover, and if, if hardcore science, I mean, this is reductionist, hardcore materialist science. I mean, this is chemists, and chemists are, they're not woo, they're incredibly uh, bolted down. Now, of course, if they were more woo, they would have a better perspective, because you need, you need magic uh, to do this work. But if we can convince them through laboratory testing to grow the first progenote, and the first progenote is the thing that's on the way to life. It's like a booting up, little fragile, kind of uh, liquidy crystal uh, system of protocells. And it's our prediction that within a generation we'll be growing these in dishes in the lab, recycling dishes, and watching them evolve. And when that happens, someone will have a time-lapse camera on the dish, and they'll see the little the little sludge of, of protocells grow and then suddenly crash, and everybody will say, what is happening? And then they'll regrow again, and we'll sequence their little simple genome and find that they manage to adapt to a new condition. And then suddenly somebody will have this flash in their soul and their mind and their heart and say, that's our ancestor. That's how we came to be. And when we see that and we realize they're collaborating, there's no way for protocells to compete because that requires all this technology. It's almost like war-making technology. And that didn't exist. It was, it was too big. Uh, so the whole system was massively collaborative. And then somebody else will say, well, but isn't the whole planet still that way? And I would then stand up on my little podium in my rocking chair you know, in my walker and say, yes, we are on a progenote planet. We're still a living system based on collaborative network uh, uh, cooperation that is struggling into being. And it's always emerging. And co- uh, we have gotten this myth wrong that it's survival of the fittest. And it's still a progenote planet. And the soils support us, grow our food. And we trade our food with our neighbors so that we can get our cappuccinos. And we build technology that's all collaborative. And this myth that somehow humans are separate and need to fight uh, is, is a destructive and toxic myth. And then when we choose to make that step, if we, if we start softening that, that dialogue, that story, and realize how interdependent we are, that's the old-fashioned term, inter- interdependence. Yeah. But we're all part of the same gel. Our bodies are giant collaborative networks of cells. Our cities are our, our, our relationship with animals and agriculture, and the whole earth is. And as we step into space, perhaps our job is to be Gaia's reproductive organs, because here's the, the terrible news. You know, apart from our climate change, there's a terminator line between Venus and Earth that gobbled up Venus a long time ago, and it's the line that represents the heating up of the sun over a long period of time. And James Lovelock, in a 
in a book that you, Jacob, loaned me, uh, his, his last book called Rough Ride to the Future. Yeah. There's a chilling chapter in there where he says, by his back-of-the-envelope calculations, and you have to believe James Lovelock because he's a, yes. a revolutionary climate scientist, and he says, I think we only have 100 million years before there's too much incident solar radiation that any CO2 in the atmosphere means we go to runaway greenhouse and become Venus. So if Gaia knows anything, if Gaia is a force, it knows that its time is fast running out. And the creation of humans, eruption of humans throughout the system, is the attempt by the whole system to make, to reproduce before it, you know, to create new biospheres, basically, in Dorian Sagan's idea of biospheres, and to create double, it's double. Cells always divide in order to go forward. So does a planetary biosphere. And then we realize we have a mission, which is to give life a path forward. And we have, you know, we have the technology, like the bionic man, you know, we have the technology. Uh, and that's where the Shepard spacecraft invention that came to us three years ago is, is the key. We have the ability to, to make biospheres uh, outside the Earth. We'll learn exquisitely how to manage the Earth's biosphere and see it as, as a beautiful system. So that's sort of the, the scope of the story of my work, uh, to change the narrative from a narrative of separation and to give a grand plan or a grand uh, project to the, the nerdy part of humanity to do and, and a grand new philosophical vision of ourselves as part of the microbial map. Beautiful. We love it. We're smiling. We love it. So, Timothy, when Timothy was in prison, he uh, wrote a book called Terra 2, and he was thinking a lot about space migration. I, I, I prefer the term space migration than space colonization. But in his mind, he had it as an elitist project, and and, that, and that's fine because uh, our uh, our belief systems and our vision is evolving all the time. So you see it not as a hierarchy, but as a developing community that includes everything from the tiniest to the most conscious human beings. Yeah, I think I think that if we could somehow step back, and we can't because we're we're in our world. We're in we're the we're the trees standing in the forest. So all we see is wood. You know, um, if we could step back and see this eruption, uh, if you were in space and you looked at the growth of cities and all those blue rooftops in China, which represent the manufacturing arms of the planetary system now, the little factories. Um, and you realize that humanity is a biological growth. It's, to it's totality, including all the animals and the, the plants around us. One interesting fact for the listeners is that uh, 5, 10, 15,000 years ago, 
if you added up all the body mass, all the weight of all vertebrates, which include fishes and cats and camels and humans, uh, we were human beings and their pets and their livestock was 2% of that biomass. Mm. You know, not including insects, of course. If you add it up now, we're 98%. So the weight of our bodies, the weight of our cows and our pets and things that live in our cities is 98% of the biomass is already centered around the human eruption. Wow. So the, the Anthropocene era, we've already made the transition. So birds in the wild or fishes that are not farmed is only 2%. Now, beetles outnumber everything, and ants, forget about that, where they, they just outnumber everything, and microbes. That's and what the mother like told that. me on ayahuasca. That's exactly what the mother told me on ayahuasca about insects. Uh-huh. Yes. But anyway, please proceed. <laughs> I just so, find that really funny. So the human experiment is the experiment of Gaia. It's not separate from Gaia. It is Gaia. It's Gaia's great quest. And once the Lakuma tree in the Andes, when I was down there with Dennis McKenna, uh, the Lakuma, thousand-year-old Lakuma tree, who showed me, she showed me her birth. She showed me the pre-Incan hands putting the seed, her seed in the soil at 800, uh, 1,000 years ago and spitting on the soil. And then she grew, and she's a 1,000 years old. So... I went to confer with her one night, and she said, you are my greatest and most beautiful creation. Because I'd asked her, do you mind that we're cutting everything down? And she said, I am the last of my kind, and you are my greatest creation. As long as you do the act, as long as you make me a new home so that we can go forward, that is your mission. You know, you and the Beatles and the... Yeah. You know, not just Ringo, John, and mm-hmm. and Paul, you know. <laughs> right, right. Uh, you know, you, you guys. You guys are the mad monkeys. So I, I did an exercise. I danced. There was a beautiful full moon, a sort of 50-year moon, and it was casting shadows of her length. So I danced along the shadow. And one shadow was innovation, creation. But what we can do is the monkeys. I said, you know what? This shadow is extending. This shadow goes all the way to space until it creates the, the balloon shepherd spacecraft, which can consume resources from asteroids and, and do that job, give you that new home. And then this shadow is a shadow of psychopathy. This is a, But this that's shortening. As the moon moves, we notice that shortening. So someone like Alexander Putin or even... Donald Trump, their teeth, their sharp teeth, formerly sharp, are shaved off. They can't do the same damage that they did, say, Joseph Stalin would have done. And so they're being hemmed in. So psychopathy is becoming less damaging. And here's another shadow that is changing, and that's the shadow of organization. Corporations are becoming, they're like living entities, I explained to the Lakuma but they're becoming smarter and more conscious. Organizations are becoming conscious and they're becoming better. Mm-hmm. And she then said, all we need is a few percent per year of improvement, and it will give us the 500-year runway we need to carry on. You know, the nuclear weapons have been put down for, for the moment. 
we need a 500-year runway to make this thing go. So that was my dance one night with, with the Lakuma and my, my own conversation. And Gaia is trying to tell us through all of these plants that uh, we have been connecting with in the last uh, 60 years, reconnecting with. She, uh, she has given us du direct messages about, I want to say about her enthusiasm for life being that she is life itself, she is life herself. But she needs to communicate her enthusiasm for life because sometimes uh, we get slow, we get really, really slow. And uh, so she gives us her plants that actually move our assemblage point and wakes up our enthusiasm for just going on another 500 years. That's so beautifully said. And I know Jake, Jacob is uh, close to these plants and has a beautiful relationship. Jacob, how would you, uh, how would you characterize that? You're, you're very intuitive in that score. Well, it's interesting. Uh, I've talked to... I mean, one of the things that my intention in joining this podcast is to bring in more permaculture and deep ecology voices, um, which is part of uh, the future that the runway that you're talking about, you know, um, we need that that level of rebalancing in our priorities and that enthusiasm that you experience through plant medicine when you are connected biologically and you feel the energy of the earth moving through you and you know, you tap into the new sphere that's emerging, I believe, on the planet. I think it's interesting in, in permaculture circles, the joining of plant medicine and ritual and uh, and shamanic experience, deep shamanic experience, you know, that goes back so many millennia is very effective. It works very well. Whereas a lot of Religious organizations, I've been talking about this with different permaculture teachers recently, it's a lot harder to combine um, these more culturally uh, rigid or even some of the more flexible religious traditions with a practice like permaculture, whereas the plant medicines really do work well together with permaculture uh, because they hit you at a biological level. You know, they do hit you... Um, uh, they they imbue an understanding of ecology, but then there's a lot of distractions. As soon as as soon as you're outside of a ritual setting, there are so many technological temptations and you know diversions that we go on. Even the best among us, uh, the most ecologically minded, and that's kind of again one of the interesting you know, trajectories that permaculture is going in. Uh, Toby Hemingway, who passed away last year, he his last book was called The Permaculture City, which ties into James Lovelock and others um, identifying some of the benefits of people migrating more and more into cities, that trend continuing, um, the energy efficiency, the ability to cool buildings and to uh, address issues of climate change. And 
So I, I guess that's, you know, I think your work is really inspiring because as I've gotten to understand more and more of what your origin of life research is communicating to us, I think that it's, it's it, you know, if it really does get proven out here in the next decade or so, like you're talking about, and gets in, you know, kind of inculcated into the scientific community, it will really change uh, people's uh, approach to to life and and how we build community on this planet, even if we are still um, having success with going off world. So uh, I know you feel the same way in the way that you live your life uh, with gardens and but how do you how do you see our culture in twenty years? What would be a more balanced a more balanced city? What would be what What's your vision of that? Yeah, the um, I had the great fortune of growing up in Western Canada in British Columbia, and I don't yet. Dahana, you spent some time there. Oh, it's beautiful. Uh, it's beautiful, and Jacob, you're from you know you spent a lot of time in central Washington. But if you go up to Vancouver, so when I was a kid in the 60s, I remember we'd go to Vancouver, and not, not quite quite in your, your uh, age bracket, Johanna, but in 67, I remember being in Vancouver, and I thought I was five years old. Uh, I wasn't, I missed, I missed the summer of love, you know, I right. didn't know what was happening. Um, would have, would have loved that, um, and we we can still make our own summers of love this summer. Yes, we uh, are and doing we will. It. Uh, we will do it. Uh, we'll do it all the time. We'll do um, it all the time. We'll do it all the time. We can. You know, we we have the knowledge. In fact, I was with Mountain Girl. This is a nice segue. I was with Mountain Girl at Burning Man in I love 2014. Her. Isn't she the most? Yeah. Oh, she she's an Earth Mama, and she's also. She's also so much more. Um, she, contributes, she contributes often to Future Primitive, oh, by the way. Beautiful. Ah, yes, I wanted oh. to honor her in that way. Every year, every year, she contributes to Future Primitive. Uh, you know, she's... The story she tells of that, that era of basically... The, the cultural scene, running the board for the Grateful Dead, you know, running the tech. She 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 told us the uh, the shortest set in rock and roll history occurred one night in early in the Dead's career when uh, she looked out at the audience and it was there was Mouse's poster, there was the oil and water, you know, visual. This could have been '66. And she looked into the audience, and they were kind of swaying back and forth. And they'd had some of the special elixirs mm-hmm. that had just been just been made. And she looked up on stage, and there was Jerry. There was like Pigpen's old guitar, and they're swaying back and forth a little bit. She's realizing I'm not swaying back and forth, and the stage is not swaying back and forth. Jerry is swaying back and forth. So she had all the. You know, the sound was set up, and Jerry reached his arm. He was, like, staring glassy-eyed into the distance, and they may have had a little bit more of the sacred elixirs than than uh, it was anticipated. <laughs> uh, and his hand came came down on the strings, and one chord, a single chord, Oof. emanated out from the board, a uh, chord from the board, and it went out 
through the audience. You could see it going out, going into each of those incredibly uh, accentuated minds. And then it basically faded off and sort of reverberated off the, the walls of the venue, and that was it. And she, you know, after another minute, she realized that's all they need. Yeah. And that's all the yeah. dead are going, needed to provide. Right. And so she just started unplugging the board. Right, right. You know, and so that's, that's a mountain girl story. Yeah, yeah. But, but at Burning Man, I asked her, I asked her the following. I was sort of a supplicant at her knee. Yes, sure. You know, she was just sitting. She was sitting there in the camp, and I was staring up at her admiringly, which she probably enjoyed to have a <laughs> supplicant or two. Yes. Yeah, we all do now and then. Yes, we uh, do. So I said, MG, uh, if this was the summer of love, and this is a good story for the summer of love, 50th anniversary year, uh, if this was the summer of love, and I was a young supplicant, uh, pale-faced, you know, teenager from the suburbs about to take my first sacred elixirs, and you were about to give them to me in Golden Gate Park. And But instead, you said, I'm going to open up this time portal. I'm going to kick your lily-white ass through the time portal, and I'm going to drop you onto the playa at night in Burning Man 2014, you know, or any year, really, uh-huh. 2017. And you're going to wake up, and you're going to see these art cars moving around. And after, I'll see the art cars and all this stuff going on. And would, would it have been a better and more profound experience to have taken those elixirs in that very early epoch, or would it have been a more transformative and awe-making to be on the playa at Burning Man, just without the elixirs, but standing up and looking at the cultural eruption around me, and she, she didn't hesitate. She said, Burning Man, 2014, we have learned how to do this. Right. Yeah. So what a statement. What yes, a statement yes, yes. of affirmation from Mountain Girl. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, because for my generation, it's easy to romanticize periods in the past, like wanting to be there in the 60s. But, you know, what we have right now is, a you know, we there's a lot that was learned. <laughs> there was a lot of mistakes made by uh, Joanna and company. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you Definitely. for learning those things. And like, uh, getting on the getting on the tube in London. <laughs> yeah. High on LSD. No, 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 no. You want to go to Burning Man, <laughs> not the tube. <laughs> <laughs> or, or at least, or at least, Camden Lock. Yeah. You know, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, Jacob asked the question about cities. Would uh, Burning Man be the answer, or would you like to say some more about uh, efficient, beautiful futures? I, I think uh, circling back to Vancouver, which I yes. got nicely diverted from. Uh, we are learning how to do this, so. When I was a kid, they had opened up, they had taken the old gas town area of Vancouver and created a beautiful walking area. And it was the first time a city had done what was called the postmodern thing. And, and gas town was developed in the late 50s, for goodness sakes. And then throughout my childhood and my adulthood, Vancouver just transformed itself. It took old industrial warehouse areas and did beautiful things with them. 
it had Stanley Park, which was an immense resource. Mm-hmm. It made it even more beautiful. Mm-hmm. And and then they built the sky trains, and they they built a beautiful city of the future by the 80s, and that every single mayor of every city in the world came to tour Vancouver. And Vancouver was had had five generations of mayors with ecological training, mm-hmm. urban geography training. They had sort of academic thinking, philosophical mayors, five in a row. And it, it led to this beautiful postmodern city that wasn't just about sawmills and shipyards, which it had been in the 19th century until the 1950s. And so Vancouver was the template for what is going on everywhere from Portland to Madras, for goodness sake. Mm-hmm. You know, you go to Curitiba, you, you go to Curitiba in, in Brazil, and it looks like the Vancouver model. You, you, I'm, I'm going to head back to Pakistan, uh, which is a place that people don't think of as advancing, but it's evolving rapidly. You know, Islamabad, Rawalpindi, Lahore now have metro links and busways and food, food streets, and people want that. They crave these beautiful urban spaces, even in cities that are you know, subject to terrorist attacks. Uh, they're still doing it, for goodness sakes. They're still saying, we want this quality of life, connection with nature, better food. We want clean air. We want renewable transfer- transportation. It's happening everywhere simultaneously. So that's the incremental several percent change that the tree was talking to you about in Peru, that we just have to yeah. keep that going. And despite this backlash from... Uh, nationalist movements across Europe and the United States and Trump, um, who really is just totally isolated at this point. I mean, Theresa May doesn't even have much power left now. So this is this you is know, all I, reaction, I, but... I, I, I tell the story of my super conservative Trump voting friends in North Dakota, yeah. who, who also you know, are connected to the coal industry. My friend in, in Lewistown, North Dakota. So he, uh, Lewistown actually is Montana in this case. And he says, you know what? I would have, I was born and raised here. I've moved to California. I came back to Lewistown. And he, what he did was, and he's a pretty conservative type guy. I mean, he lived in California, but he got the town together to take the old rail yard and turn it into a park. Then they turned the river and they cleaned up the river. Then they turned it into a, a beautiful walking and biking area. Then they created a new square. And he said the ranchers, the combine harvester ranchers, and you recognize this character type, Jacob, they do not want their slosh coffee at 5 in the morning and their, their greasy eggs and bacon. No, 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 no. They want the organic free trade, right. double latte. They want their bagel with really good quality you know, locks and whatever that, and th- that's what they're having in their combine harvester, or they're having at five in the morning. They want that quality. They 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 prize that, and they really like the way their town is going. And and so that's in the heart of freaking Red Belt, whatever. They're not going to give that up. They like that direction. Well, and so, Alex Alex Jones too. Uh, all the product, most of the products, as far as I can tell, on his site are organic and. You know, I've heard that Trump drinks raw milk. I don't know, but um, <laughs> I think I think you're right. I think ultimately, people when they 
when they see how poor nutrition and, you know, environmental contamination impacts their children or themselves cumulatively over the years, they choose the right choice. They choose safety and, you know, and good, good community decisions. Um, so that's, that's a good observation. And, and the question I'd like to ask you, Bruce, is then why do I care so much? Why does it give me such life force to know that I'm an interstellar seed and to have it confirmed by you and to be sure that uh, I can communicate that that enthusiasm and that and that reason for life, along with having my decaf uh, brevet <laughs> at better day. Brevet. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, you're one step above. Uh... Above, with above the, the latte, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> one, one, a little less milk in my coffee, please. <laughs> right, we have we can we can put all kinds of creamers in now so that the earth likes a bit better. Well, you know, where there's places where there are no brevis, Venus being too hot, and I'm I'm part of a site selection team for NASA's next lander, their next uh, rover in 2020. And we've had to do some fundamental thinking because NASA wants to see if they can detect signs probably of past life on Mars. And so our team has been uh, pointing to a location that they need to go back to, called Columbia Hills in the Gusev Crater, that has a hot spring. It's a yellow, it's an ancient Yellowstone. There's no water in it now, but it's 3.7 billion years old and there's no brevis there. Uh, you know, it's really dusty. Not yet. And, Elon Musk is working on it. Yeah, and of course, Elon's plan is a bit much reading a fantasy thing. Uh, it's difficult. I just read his paper, and he acknowledges how it's not very pragmatic, not very practical. But uh, so we are going to Mars, and it's, the launch is in 2020, and the landing's at the beginning of 2021, maybe as Trump departs the scene, if he hasn't already. Uh, but here we are. We're, we we put a rover down, and we're gonna if we if we are selected or if our site is selected, we drive up to this outcrop, which looks like Yellowstone sort of remains. Uh, and I'm going to Yellowstone in three weeks to do origin of life experiments in the active pools there. Mm, so don't fall in to get experiment experience. And the terrible thing when you're standing there on Mars, you know, as a rover, as an avatar. Uh, in a robot skin, right? you realize this planet died. This planet died a long time ago. It lost its atmosphere. The oceans dried up. It used to have a warm, wet climate uh, four billion years ago. And if life started, it had no future path at all. The only place you'd find it is deep underground. And the only place you'd find, say, stromatolite rock textures that indicate it was there is in this outcrop 3.7 billion years old. And it's humbling. It's humbling to realize there's a world that is closer to the sun that turned into a hot hot greenhouse mm-hmm. called Venus. And then there's a world, this world, 
which was potentially habitable and it died and life had no future except for living deep underground and hot salty. So it, it couldn't evolve anymore. And then there's this beautiful blue planet in between the red one and the white one, uh, which is this miracle of miracles, complex life, you know, that in this beautiful solar system, which is really rare with the stability that, that plants and animals could actually come into being. Uh, that the microbial map basically said that this, what is Gaia is this inf- almost infinitely sized microbial community that said, I know, we'll clean the oceans and we'll clean the atmosphere and we'll put oxygen in the atmosphere and make a blue sky and then we'll get it together to make multicellular things and those things can then have lives of, of, of true colonial status like plants and animals and then we'll cycle that for a while and see how far we get. Oh, we got to intelligence. We got to tool making. Uh-huh. You know, oh, we got to a, a being that can have a connection with the field, that can go into higher states of being uh, and, and have a connection with the allness. Oh, that's a good sign. Oh, and we got them, they got, oh, they invented smartphones. Now they're really distracted by their technology. And, and we'll see how far that goes. Mm-hmm. And But no, they've got all these spiritual tools, partly through their technology, and now they're spinning higher and higher and higher. Let's see if they can erupt. Let's see if they can birth a new world, a new biosphere. Let's, they can they can learn how to manage their world as a biosphere, and they can birth a future for life in the cosmos, which is this complex life is so extraordinarily rare that there's a lot of coins, there's a lot of pennies on the on the table here because we're really, really rare. So, and it, we're in this beautiful epoch now where this is all coming together. The realization, the vi- visionary tools, the technological tools, the biological tools, uh, the artistic and poetic tools, it's all just concressing now. And what a time to be alive. All right, I'm ready to be a biological space traveler. <laughs> <laughs> or, 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 Johanna, inner space travel. Which oh, is, yeah, 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 I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I'm ready you've to. you've done your share of. Pardon? You've done your share of inner space traveling. Never. Never. (laughs) I just want to ask you a question in closing. Well, my question, Jacob probably has a closing question too, if I may say. This, um, these interstellar seeds that we are, seeding systems that we are, uh, do they carry love? Yeah, I think it does. I think well, for instance, um, we can only do this if we have empathy. We can only do this if we if we overcome separation. Because if we have separation, we kill the whole system and ourselves. So, I think that's where the love comes in—the softness that I oh, you need that, I'll give that to you. Little children where they share toys. Little children where. If one does something and the other cries, they make up. Mm. You know, that is what we are and we need to be, mm. is like little children mm. and in a sharing culture. And as we raise our children without trauma, without traumatizing them with all these right. character styles, and we learn about that, 
we're going to boot up a new civilization. It really starts with the little children at play and how the parents are very knowledgeable about what creates wounds. So we don't, you don't have to go through what you had to go through in your life, leaving and becoming isolated from your family and your roots. And you created a new family. You, You found a new family, but uh, you you have a clear message to humanity to not traumatize the next child. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Jacob, would you like to, um, would you like to be our <clears throat> closing wisdom? Well, yeah, that was beautiful, Bruce. I, I guess I am uh, wondering uh, how people can follow you best um, and your, all your many explorations here. I know you have a couple TED Talks that I was present at in Santa Cruz in 2015. Are those the state of the art of your visions for future or the origin of life and, and space travel? Thank you for, for asking and allowing the uh, opening for a plug. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't have a whole lot to plug. Uh, people can find out about pretty much my whole world by going to damer.com, D-A-M-E-R.com. If you're French, it's damer.com. Uh, and uh, so there's the Levity Zone podcast, which which uh, our very own Jacob helped. He named it and helped get it going and did a, a lot of the original work, the cover arts and the huge, huge amount in the site uh, for the Levity Zone, and that's levityzone.org. Uh, in one, one evening with Terrence uh, at his house in Hawaii, I turned to him and I said, Terrence, we have enough novelty. We need more levity. Exactly. So that was the get birth of, of, of the levity zone. Yeah. And it's uh, not as frequent as uh, Future Primitive, but it, uh, it it's really my own heartfelt diary of what's going on in my life. So you can literally, there's 56 episodes so far, and it goes from my life in Prague in the early 90s all the way up with a few extra people s- sprinkled in. And soon we will get Jacob in, in there as well again. Um, Jacob's in several of the podcasts in our salons, the Levity Zone salons. But uh, the YouTube, there's a YouTube channel linked off of Damer.com with lots of stuff. And the Science of Consciousness is going to be publishing the talk and a, a one-hour interview uh, in July, which will be the, the great explication of where I am at, at the moment. And in August... Uh, Scientific American is running a, a major article uh, about this new origin of life hypothesis with the, all the geology and the, you know, the trimmings. So there, then there's two TV documentaries in production. So that you'll see me here, here and there in my, not my white lab coat, but my khakis and my field hat and my rock hammer um, in, in one of them. Well, I. I want to say thank you so much for your life, Herr Dr. Bruce Dammer. <laughs> hey, 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 I'm an I'm an Irish doctor. Don't forget, and I I can't I can only prescribe you uh, certain types of elixirs. Um, Excellent. Uh, for your- 
for your, your illumination. Excellent. <laughs> You're my friend, friend. All Beautiful. right. That was very inspiring. Thank you, and Bruce. We'll, we'll, we'll see you in Santa Fe because I'm really magnetically drawn to Santa Fe uh, for, for a view and to see Jacob's new digs and Come on. have a wonderful uh, moonlit evening somewhere near in a hot spring. Sounds fabulous. Okay. That's where we begin. That's where life began. So we can sit in the hot there. soup. Yeah, the <laughs> hot soup. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Thank you all.